How do you summon the motivation to keep going and perform at elite levels when your body is absolutely ravaged by injury? Why do you turn down interest from the AFL to go to the Olympic Games and who do you get to feed your reptile collection when you're in Tokyo? And how can white Australia do better when it comes to closing the gap? I'm your host Joey Lynch and this is Beyond the Lead with Carl Chalmers. With six medals across two Olympic Games, Carl Chalmers is already one of Australia's most successful Olympians and at just 23 years old, the swimmer has got a lot of time to add to his already impressive resume. After claiming a gold in the 100 meter men's freestyle at the 2016 Rio Olympics, Chalmers went agonizingly close, agonizing, to making it two from two in the 100 at the Tokyo 2020 Games when he was just pipped to the line by American rival Caleb Dressel. He also added two further bronze relay medals. Now, any Olympic podium is a huge achievement, but when you run down the list of ailments and obstacles that Chalmers overcame to just compete in Tokyo, let alone get a medal, the extent of his efforts becomes truly apparent. Battling a series of injuries that would force many others to give the sport away, the son of former Port Adelaide and Adelaide Crows AFL player Brett Chalmers was even courted by both the Power and Geelong before ultimately opting to stay in the pool and target Tokyo. Now, the fire in Chalmers' belly is well and truly lit for Paris 2024, and a rematch with good mate Dressel, as well as representing the London Roar in the coming International Swimming League meets in Europe. Beyond that, the Port Lincoln boy has his reptile collection and multiple NBA fantasy leagues to tend to, as well as a passion for working towards closing the gap for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and confronting and challenging the racism and systemic barriers that they face. But as he joined me from Hotel Quarantine in Darwin, I first asked him just how he'd been passing the time during his two-week stay. Problem is that I don't really have much Wi-Fi going on, so um, so I can't really get on and watch TV shows and movies and whatnot. But um, I've been watching the Harry Potter series, which has been... which is filled in plenty of time and then I've had plenty of media and uh, sponsorship commitments and just catching up with my my friends and family obviously during competition it's quite hard to stay in touch with people so um, I've made sure that I've yeah I guess caught up with everyone now which has been nice. Do you have a favourite Harry Potter movie? Uh, I've act- I couldn't tell you the lot I would have watched the, lo- the whole lot maybe in 2017 I reckon so I haven't watched it for a while but so far my favourite's probably been um, number four The Goblet of Fire I reckon. All right, there we go. Yeah, when you get out of hotel quarantine, what's the plan? Catching up with family? How long do you actually get uh, to take some time off and rest and recuperate before you're back on the grind of elite swimming again? Yeah, so I've got three days up here in Darwin with um, a couple of my good mates who are on the swimming team. So we're going to just take some time to probably go check out the waterfalls and uh, go fishing, go barramundi fishing. Um, probably have a bit of a party, which would be nice. And then, yeah, back home to Adelaide for about only about 10 days before I end up going back over to Europe to race at the International Swimming League, the ISL. So it's not going to be very long, but uh, I hope I hope I get to just enjoy my time while I'm at home and catch up with as much of my friends and family as I can and probably just live a bit of a normal lifestyle there for a bit. Now, because I've been told that you're a bit of a massive fan of reptiles. So are you hoping to catch any of the more larger uh, denizens of the top ends, the scaly ones, while you're out and about? I will definitely try and do something reptile-related, but um, 
probably not necessarily catching him. I don't think my mates will be as keen as I am to do that sort of stuff. So might be a little bit limited, but um, but yeah, I'll get out about and have a, and try and check out some crocodiles and probably go maybe check out one of the wildlife parks here while we while we're up here. But um, but yeah, so I'll be, I'm excited. How long have you had this appreciation for our cold-blooded friends? Where did it come from? Uh, well, so I grew up in country South Australia in Port Lincoln and my grandpa was right into reptiles. So he kind of got me into it and, and got me my first ever bearded dragon as a pet. And when I moved back to Adelaide, I desperately wanted to have a pet. Like I'd obviously grown up on a pretty big property in Port Lincoln. So I was able to have everything. I had a lot of different animals. And um, when I got to Adelaide, moving to suburbia and wasn't allowed to keep anything. So uh, mum said I could have a blue tongue lizard and uh, as soon as I got back from the Rio Olympics, I just decided to fill my, I guess, garage up with as many critters as I can. So I've got pythons, I've got a crocodile, I've got plenty of lizards and um, goannas and you name it. I've kind of got it all but uh, and, and have had it all during, during the last few years. And it's just a good distraction away from me from the pool. Obviously, we spend pretty well up to 50 hours in and around the pool. So getting out and um, doing things is quite challenging. So... For me, I get, you know, the reptiles rely on me to feed and clean them every day of the week. And um, I don't have a whole lot of time for much else. So I kind of, you know, come home from training, do a bit of feeding, do a bit of cleaning, whatever else, have a nap. And um, and I've just formed a different group of friends away from the pool. I've, a lot of people know me as KC Critters rather than um, Kyle Chalmers, the swimmer, which is also quite nice. Do, do these new mates look after them while you're on the road swimming? Yeah, they do. I've got a mate who drops around there pretty regularly and feeds and checks in on everything. And um, and then my mum and my brother are still at home in my house, so um, they they do what else needs to be done. But this time of year, everything's in hibernation anyway, so it's uh, it works out pretty well. I mean, the get the reason you're in um, hotel quarantine, mate, is because you have just returned from the Tokyo Olympics, silver in individual competition, and two bronzes in the relay now up to six total. Now, admittedly, there've been different colors over the journey, but coming off the back now of what is your second Olympic games, does the actual feeling of winning an Olympic medal ever lose its luster or is it just as thrilling the sixth time as it was the first? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's the best feeling in the world, mate. I think um, for me, even the, the first medal I won again in Tokyo, that bronze medal in the relay was just a massive highlight for me. I knew how hard I'd worked to get back to that point. And, and I took that bronze medal home and sat on my bed for the afternoon and just looked at it and touched every part of it. And, um, you know, just obsessed over that, that medal. Um, it's such a, you know, it just, it, it's a token of how hard you've worked over that five year period to get back there. And uh, it's just nice receiving one, but you know, obviously Tokyo, I got the silver medal in the 100 freestyle by such a fraction of a margin um, after winning gold in Rio. Um, but for me, mate, it feels like I've won gold. I, um, I've i worked so hard to be back there at the Olympic Games. I've had to overcome so much over the last five years. So um, Rio, I was a young 18-year-old kid, stood up, won gold, probably didn't really know what I'd achieved and how much it, you know, meant to the country. And um I've had to work so hard and fight my way back to be back there. And it feels like gold to me, that silver medal. And it means probably so much more to me because I know how much, I, how hard I've worked to get that. Because mm, I mean, I, I was reading through a, a list of the injuries that you've had to overcome on the way 
to Tokyo and it, you've had a whole platoon's worth, let alone enough one individual. Could you just give the listeners a rundown just exactly what you had to go, go through to get to the Olympics and compete, let alone win a silver, overcome to win a silver medal? Yeah, so injury-wise, I had um, a pretty bad back problem. So I had three facet joint epidurals in my back just to, um, I guess, take the load off of that. Um, I've had 12 cortisones in my left shoulder, one in my right shoulder. I had a cortisone in my ankle um, or two cortisones in my ankle, I think. I've had PRP, which is where they kind of suck your blood out, spin it in a machine and pump the plasma back up into the the injured part of my shoulder so the subscap which repaired that um i've had two heart surgeries uh because i had a condition called superventricular tachycardia so i had two two of those surgeries which fixed that up which is nice um then i had shoulder surgery so that was the big one where they yeah, took my burster out took my labrum out and um and that was only december last year so i kind of had seven months of preparation um to get myself physically well again but you know that that obviously takes a big toll mentally so you have to overcome all of that you know my my parents who were together in rio and shared that fond moment with me broke up which was um really upsetting for me and uh, my mum now lives with me uh but that's something that's been quite hard to overcome and still is and then obviously oh then and then my grandma who was living me with me in 2016 as well she actually passed away so you know, everyone has challenges and hurdles to overcome, but I feel like I've had quite a lot over this last five years and had to work very hard to get back. And especially this last six months, it's been um, very up and down with the shoulder injury. And there's been a lot of doubt in my mind whether I'd be able to get back and get back on top. But, um, you know, I fought my way back, like I said, and uh, are happy to happy to be back where I am. Just listening to that, Gov, I mean, you could take, any one of those things and realistically spin, uh, you know, wanting to step away because of it. And you've had to go through so many, just, did you ever feel like that's it? I can't do this anymore. I want to step away. Um, sometimes, but I think also swimming for me was the the thing that grounded me and also, and, you know, not grounded me, but it was the most consistent thing in my life. I knew that day in, day out, I could go to the pool. My coach is going to be there. My squad mates are going to be there. And I'm able to train. So um, I think swimming was my escape from all that sort of stuff. And I think, uh, and I do, do love the sport these days. I love being a part of um, the swimming community and representing my country. So uh, I think for me, swimming's probably helped me get through all that stuff. But obviously, there's definitely times where doubt starts to climb into your mind and you start to think that it's all too hard and you're kind of done with it. But I think I stayed pretty true to myself and, and, um, you know, it's a it's an interesting story that I've got myself, I guess, there with all of those things, and um, I hope that the Paris now I can just have a real clean run at it, and hopefully I can have three years where it's just going to be nice, easy going, and everyone goes through challenges. It's just how you have, how you overcome to them and adapt to them, and I think I've done a pretty good job of that. Because going through all of that and heading to Tokyo, and then you go out, you're in the hundred free, and you actually set a PB in the final only to get pipped by uh, a bloke swimming an Olympic record. That's got to give you a lot of confidence that you've been able to overcome this, but you're still absolutely world-class and you can only get better for Paris. Absolutely. I think for me, um, Paris is a very, very exciting opportunity. I'm going to be in my physical prime in, in three years time. 
Um, and, you know, exactly like you said, I've had such a rough journey, especially this last little period. So if I get that clean run, I know that I'm going to be um, back where I was in Rio. I think I can definitely take home the gold medal again and, and make it a gold medal sandwich with my, my Olympics. The man that won the gold medal, Caleb Dressel, do you have a bit of a friendly rivalry going with him? You're good mates with him, a bit of banter. What, what's that like? We are, we are good mates. We actually, we keep in touch while we're, while we're apart, which is nice. And we bring, we bring the best out of each other. We know that we're in that race to race against each other and, and produce some of the fastest swimmers in history. So um, I know that I'm every time I stand next to him on the blocks, I'm going to be giving my 110% to try and beat him and, and he's no different. So I think we've just got a pretty yeah healthy rivalry, I guess. And um, it definitely brings the best out of the both of us. So we've had some pretty fierce races over the year, but we've got plenty more to come. And in preparation for this chat, mate, uh, paying attention to the talk you had with Sports Day, where you revealed that you'd had talks with Geelong and Port Adelaide, of course, a bit of a family history in AFL. How close did you come to making a switch to uh, Australia's domestic code before you committed to swimming? Did it ever get anything close? Did it ever get close or did anything just, just get swimming over the line for you? Yeah, I guess it's always kind of fizzled on in the background that that football talk and um, clubs having a bit of a chat, chat to me here and there and whatnot. But I think last year was probably the closest I've ever got just when my shoulder, I couldn't get my shoulder right for the, for the life of me. And I thought, well, if I can't swim, maybe I have to step into, into footy and give that an opportunity. And I like I, I met with Geelong and had a pretty good good chat with them. And they kind of said, if you want to do it, you have to do it after Tokyo. And um, for me, it kind of made it all real and realistic. And I thought that if I can't get my shoulder right, then I'll, then I'll definitely do go down that pathway. And then um, I'm an ambassador for Port Power and my dad played for Port Power and uh, I've got a very, very close relationship with them. So I obviously told them what had happened with Geelong and then they went, well, we want you. So if you're actually going to do that, like we want you to be our Category B rookie. And um, so the option's there and has been there. But I think for me, I'm more motivated and hungrier than I've ever been to, to swim and succeed at swimming. So uh, I definitely won't be going down the footy path anytime soon. I'll be getting ready for Commonwealth Games next year. And then, like I said, Paris is only three years away. So it's not, not too long to train now. And, uh, and I'm fully dedicated and motivated to, to swim well and, and go better than I did in Tokyo. Could you ever sneak a cheeky game of country footy into your preparations or is that too much of an injury risk? It's too much of an injury risk. If, if only I actually was talking to my great mate, Sam Jacobs, uh, on the phone a couple of days ago, and he said, um, I wish we signed you up so that you could have got a game when you, like, because I could play a game maybe in the next couple of weeks when I get home to Adelaide. But unfortunately, registration's closed for the clubs now, and uh, I missed that boat this time around. But, um, but no, nah, it's something for me to look forward to once swimming's over is playing country footy and uh, just having some fun with my mates. I think by the time that comes around, I'll be, very over professional sport or sport in general. And I'll just want to, you know, enjoy sport for what it is and play with my mates, have a beer after a game and, um, and not take it too seriously. So, uh, but yeah, footy is a huge passion of mine. Now, obviously Tokyo 2020 was staged in a manner that, well, we hope at the very least we'll never have to be seen again, but looking beyond the COVID stuff very briefly, what were the differences that you noticed between these games and your debut in Rio in terms of your own approach and your own maturity and your own attitudes towards competing? 
Uh, I just guess I knew what to expect when I rolled into Rio. It was the first time for me racing individually. So everything was new and I didn't know what was going on. And um, it was exciting. Whereas this time I knew exactly what I was getting myself in for. Uh, I knew how the marshalling room works. I knew how the, you know, the, the boys work in the marshalling room. Obviously that's a pretty tense situation and people try and play with your head, I guess, a bit, zone you out, do the mind games. So um I think for me, in I was yeah just able to prepare, able to prepare and know what what exactly I needed to do to get the best out of myself. I've had had five years in between to I guess knuckle down and um, come up with a pretty good race plan and race strategy. And I knew that if I was able to stick to that and swim how I wanted to swim, I'd be completely fine. And I think the greatest part of it all was that I had my personal swimming coach there, Peter Bishop from Adelaide, and we're able to share that journey together. I wasn't, wasn't lucky enough to have him in Rio and share that moment with him, but to do it with this, do it with him this time around was really special for me. You mentioned mind games. What are the mind games that uh, take place before a swimming race? How are you getting in each other's heads? Well, I just think there's a whole lot of testosterone flowing around in there, especially you have, you have the eight big sprint boys from around the globe. Um, there's a fair bit of stare down going on, bit of fair bit of body slapping people do and, walking up and down between the chairs and um, there's very little talking. It's kind of just heavy breathing. And I guess, you know, if you were a young person that had never experienced that before, you'd get zoned out pretty quick. But I'm a person that, that loves that stuff and, and I love to be the person that's kind of doing it a bit as well. So um, hopefully I kind of play with a few people's minds when I'm in the marshalling room, that's for sure. Yeah, let them know who the king of the jungle is, so to speak. But in <laughs> Tokyo, there was also um, the COVID stuff, obviously, and all the protocols and hoops you had to jump through. How surreal was doing all of that? I mean, was it bemusing or are you in an area where you're just too in the zone to really even pay attention to it? I definitely paid attention to it for the first week. I think here in Australia, we've been so lucky for such a long time and haven't really had to deal with COVID all that much. So I think all the Aussies kind of got over there and were very paranoid about it all. So we we're all very strict for the first week and making sure we were doing every single possible thing to avoid COVID. Um, but then I guess it just became normal life, you know what I mean? Putting your gloves on in the food hall, sitting in your little perspex box so that you weren't touching anyone or weren't able to speak to anyone type thing for, for food or spending as much time in your room as you possibly could so that uh, so that you didn't become a close contact with anyone with COVID. But um, for me, it was just a big relief to be there. I think the last 18 months, obviously, it got cancelled and then there's been so much talk of the, the chance of it being cancelled and even the, the people in Tokyo not wanting the Olympic Games, like the uh, general population and... Um, so you kind of have that little bit of doubt in the back of your mind and it isn't until you finally get there and I finally got there and watched the racing kick off on the first day and watched the women uh, win that 4x100 freestyle relay and I kind of went, this is real and we're here at the Olympic Games and it's all happening and it's going to happen. So um, that's probably where my mind shift, mindset finally shifted. You mentioned it earlier in, in the chat, mate, how you're heading off uh, to swim in the International Swimming League, the ISL in the months ahead with the London Roar alongside the likes of um, Adam Peasy and Australia's new queen of the pool, I guess, in Emma McKeon. But the ICL isn't something that gets a ton of coverage here in the mainstream Australian sporting press. Could you give us a bit of a rundown on what it is and why you want to take part in it? Yeah, so it's pretty similar to Big Bash cricket, essentially. So there's uh, 10 teams from around the globe. Uh, and they have a draft and you get drafted to a certain team. So 
Um, I was lucky enough to be a part of the London Roar in the first season of it. This is season three now. So the reason why I probably didn't get too much coverage last year because there was only uh, one, uh, two Aussies that were went across there because we weren't allowed to go. So didn't get much coverage last year, but I really hope that this year, this time around, because there's Aussies competing, um, it will get coverage. But essentially, yeah, we're going to Europe to race. It's short course racing, so it's all sprints. There's no heats. It's just straight up finals. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll compete to see who the best team is. Really, it's more more so team based rather than individual uh, races. So we, well, you do individual races, but it's all to get points for the team. So the team with the the most points at the end of the season obviously um, wins a bit of prize money, which is nice. But um, it's a good opportunity to race internationally, and, and, and I'm the captain of the London Raw, so I'm I'm very excited about it. Mm, enjoyable experience being part of a team. Their wins are your wins, and Vice versa? Massively. I think um, I'm a person that grew up with team as my, well, team sport is my favourite thing. That's why I love relays. And um, so being back on that team with uh, with the London Raw, I'm, I'm really excited about it. So um, I think it's my probably favourite favorite, uh, and most enjoyable swimming competitions I've ever done. Of course, that's coming up soon. And But you also talked about, you know, the injuries and the surgeries you had to go through. Given the compact uh, schedule between Tokyo and Paris, there's only a three-year break now as opposed to the five-year one we just had. How do you plan to look after yourself over the next three years? Do you have scope to maybe take some time off and work out kinks? Do you even need to? Or is it just more about management at this point? It's just management for me now. I think there's I've got things that I am never going to be perfect in my body, unfortunately. So I've... I've learned a lot about myself over this last little period and ways that I can manage my body and manage those injuries to the best of my ability. And so for me, it's just going to be about management and, and getting as much racing and training as in as I possibly can. Cause I, I missed a whole lot of it with injury. Um, so I feel like if I can have a real clean run at Paris and stay pretty well injury free or just stay on top of the injury management, I know that I'll be fine. And I've, I've got the best team I could possibly ask for around me, physio, massage, doctor, coaches. They're all very understanding and all really across the injuries that I've got myself. So um, so I think that we're going to be in a pretty good spot. What does the week-to-week schedule of an elite swimmer look like? You mentioned before how much training you're doing, how much time in the pool are you spending, in the gym, you know, doing recovery and how much support do you need both in terms of your support staff and also sponsors and that to allow you to do this sort of thing? Oh, massively without sponsors, there's no way I'd be able to be a professional swimmer. I think I'm very lucky to have a few sponsors on board, which um, allow me to not have to work a day job or study at the moment, which is nice. But um, you know, cause we're swimming, we're swimming probably up to almost 30 hours a week in the water um then we're in the gym three times a week so there's probably another six hours uh i do a bit of pilates and yoga i do a whole lot of obviously prehab and rehab on my shoulder so you're looking at probably at least 10 hours of that that i'd put in each week uh and then i've got physio i see a physio twice a week if not more i see massage twice a week if not more so there's probably another four hours just like that um what else do i got put in there Oh, and then I guess everything else that comes with swimming, just with sponsorship commitments, media stuff, um, the whole the management that I have to go through to get you know my shoulder right, just with um, icing it and stretching and 
uh, whatnot when I'm at home. It, it is a full-time job. So you're probably looking at close to 50 hours a week at least I'm putting into swimming and that's six days a week. So we get one day off on a Sunday. So don't get, don't get a whole lot of social life, unfortunately. Um, I see my mates for dinner during the week, but I've got a pretty good group of friends now that understand my schedule and understand my lifestyle. So they're all pretty understanding, that's for sure. Now, outside of the pool, you're also an advocate and a passionate advocate, I should say, for closing the gap and working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Could you, what, what do you do in that space? Yeah, that's something I really want to, I'm trying to work with my management at the moment to see how I can best uh, be a spokesperson for that and be a, you know, uh, I guess, talking, talking about it and being, you know, I think Indigenous Australians have done so much educating over their time and it's time to take the responsibility away from, well, not away from them, but it's, it's about us now standing up and educating us as, as white Australians and um, being leaders and, and I guess finding the best possible ways that we can um, work together. You know, I think we all have to commit to our own own journeys of education and truth-telling and um, find ways that we can be better allies. And, you know, I've had so many mates and I have so many mates who are Indigenous Australians who are affected by racism and it just makes me really sad and I'm just at a point now where I'm completely, I'm completely over it. You know, no one deserves to no no one deserves to live like that. Um, so if I can be a spokesperson and use my platform to promote, um, or not promote, but you know, just try to stop racism as much as I can, then I feel like I'm playing my part. So it's a uh, definitely an area that I want to get into as much as I can when I get home. And um, you know, I think it's about me. Yeah, like I said, using my platform to promote it. And uh, I think I would love to start a podcast and just interview, which I'm trying to organise with my management at the moment, just to start a podcast and interview uh, an Indigenous person most weeks or every couple of weeks and just talk about racism and how their life's been affected by racism and just get that those, those stories out there so people can actually get a better understanding of um, the world that we currently live in because I think it's... You know, it is really sad that we're at, in 2021 and there's and there's so much racism going on with in within Australia. So, um, yeah, like I said, I just want to be a spokesperson for that and um, align myself with charities and brands that are doing the same as me. Because mm, it's not the job of Indigenous Australians and Torres Strait Islanders to educate us about racism, is it? It's our responsibility as white people and white Australians to not do that ourselves, be anti-racist ourselves. Exactly. Like we, we just, it's no longer about leaving the load to them, to the people that are impacted by racism. It shouldn't be leaving it up to them to educate us. It's about exactly like you said, we have to educate ourselves and um, educate the people around us uh, to be better. Like we just, we need to be better at the end of the day. Um and it's just sad that it's coming up so often in the AFL and, um, you know, they're high profile people, but I grew up in, you know, a town of town called Port Lincoln, uh, seven and a half hours away from Adelaide, which was, and, you know, I've got a lot of, a lot of Aboriginal mates, uh, and still do. I spend a lot of time with, um, Aboriginal Australians and, um, you know, just hearing their stories constantly about the racism that goes on and, uh, it just yeah, really makes me sick and makes me sad. So for me, I want to be 
uh, a leader in that area. Well, that's definitely something that uh, our listeners and we can all keep uh, keep areas to the ground for you. Hopefully you get that podcast up and also take our mayo role about being an anti-racist. But I also did want to ask you before I let you go, Carl, mate, I understand you're also a huge NBA basketball fan and in particular a Kevin Durant fan. Now, were there any yeah. split loyalties when the USA played the Boomers because of that? Um, not so much, but I did enjoy watching. I obviously was supporting the Boomers, but Kevin Durant went off in that third quarter and just single-handedly won the US the game. So can't be overly upset about that. He's a star, but yeah, huge NBA fan, huge uh, huge fantasy basketball player, I should say. I, I managed three fantasy basketball teams and my life pretty much revolves around that. So um, basketball's great for me. I get to get home from training, kind of sit there and have breakfast and watch it for a couple of hours, have my nap, and it's still going when I wake up and struggling at the moment while there's no actual NBA on. There's the summer leagues on at the moment, so I'm watching a bit of that. But, um, but yeah, huge basketball fan, huge, huge, huge Kevin Durant fan. Um, so, yeah, very, yeah, I guess I, I do enjoy it. Do you have a team or do you more follow individual players? Individual players. So I follow my five, my five keeper fantasy players. So Zach Levine, Paul George, Rudy Gobert, De'Aaron Fox and Domitas Sabonis. So I kind of make sure I get on and watch those guys as much as I possibly can. And um, I just love basketball for what it is rather than following a team. Okay. How do you think Josh Giddy's going to go over there with the Thunder? I think he'll go okay. I was good watching him. Uh, he was obviously playing for the Adelaide 36ers and I'm an ambassador for the Sixers. So I was sitting kind of courtside watching him play the start of the year, which was which was good fun. And there was obviously so much hype around him and he did so well to to play so well when there was the hype. But um yeah, I think he'll be I think he'll be very good over at the Oklahoma City Thunder. So wish him all the best. Absolutely, mate. Well, I won't keep you any longer, mate. You've been super generous. And when I say super generous, I genuinely mean it. Really, really generous. <laughs> no problems. Time. Very grateful for the, all, all the support that we've received throughout the Olympic Games. Um, obviously, it's been a tough time for everyone here in Australia. Uh, so hopefully we we're able to bring some joy to everyone that's in lockdown. And, um, you know, like I said, it's only three years now until Paris. So hopefully everyone can ride along the journey with us from, from Tokyo through to Paris. And there's so much excitement around around the swimming team at the moment. Um, so couldn't do it without you all. And we, we appreciate the love and support from the, from everyone in Australia. Yeah, well, absolutely, mate. Sitting here in lockdown, I could definitely sense the mood of the nation was lifted by all of you guys over there in the pool and indeed in Tokyo in general. But once again, mate, really appreciate your time. No problems. Thanks so much for having me on, mate. Appreciate it. After his much-deserved break and experience in the top end, Chalmers' campaign with a London Raw for the 2021 International Swimming League season will begin in September in Naples, Italy, the tournament itself commencing in late August. Beyond that, he has the 2022 Commonwealth Games in renowned tourist destination Birmingham to consider, as well as peaking for Paris 2024. No doubt he'll also be paying close attention to the NBA and the play of Kevin Durant and his Olympic teammate Paddy Mills at the Brooklyn Nets. But for now, I'd like to thank you for joining us on another edition of ESPN's Beyond the Lead, this time with Australian Olympic swimmer and reptile enthusiast, Carl Chalmers. 
I've been your host, Joey Lynch, and as a little bit of a reminder, as we often like to do at the end of these things, you can catch this episode, every other episode of Beyond the Lead, and indeed all of ESPN's collection of podcasts and audio goodness, wherever you happen to get your podcasts from. If you're enjoying Beyond the Lead or any of those other aforementioned ESPN podcasts, be sure to subscribe while you're chasing them down and help spread the word. Or alternatively, if you're not, let's just keep it between us, our little secret. But if it's the former, which I very much hope it is, I'll catch you for another deep dive into sports as ESPN takes you beyond the lead very soon.